This episode, I have the amazing Ellie Frith come on and we have a deep in the weeds conversation around her experience of being admitted to an acute mental health unit and the good and bad experiences that came along with that. Uh, I will preface this episode with a strong trigger warning. There is quite a lot of conversation around uh, the goings-on on an acute mental health unit, around Ellie's uh, suicidal thoughts and suicide attempts. Please, if this is a trigger for you, don't feel like you have to listen to this one. Just wait for the next one to come out. Uh, if you are okay with those kinds of topics, it is an immensely valuable learning resource and I am sto- so stoked uh, to bring Ellie to you guys. G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories, and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. Um, So I think my particular journey with depression... Um, was quite <laughs> violent in that I, I imagine that I had depression similar to what you said um, where you, you talked about having it for about 18 months potentially um, I think I must have had depression for a year maybe longer than a year without realizing that I, I had depression I think I was high functioning I think that's a term that people use so I was working that was my main focus in life was my job um, my career progression in my career and so I kind of just assumed that it was fine for that to take over my entire life and to be all encompassing and to exhaust me and drain me and give me no energy or time for the other people in my life or my own interests. Um, and so I probably had that going on in the background. But then when I, I had um, a, like basically a complete breakdown on results day because I just wasn't happy with um, the results that my students got. So you're a, um, you're a so, teacher, just to be clear. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I, I'm a secondary English teacher and... Um, I it was results day and I'd worked really really hard all year with this particular cohort I, the context was that I was working in a, a special measures school which is basically like a failing school and you have a set amount of time to turn the school around before they close the school and you felt like you were part of this big mission towards making the school good and making it a great environment for children and I felt this moral responsibility to make sure that all of my students were able to go on and do whatever they wanted to do in life and I worked myself to the bone. I had a number of responsibilities, um, you know, as well as being a teacher within the school. Um, and so I would dedicate a lot of my time to all of these things. And the whole message that I was telling myself while I was working towards these things was, it's all worth it. It's all going to be worth it. Wait until you see the results. And that will mean it's worth it. And I can remember getting the results. My um, line manager rang me the day before the, t- the kids got the actual results and gave them to me over the phone. And I didn't really have an opportunity to properly process them because my friend came over like immediately after. And so I was reeling from this this news that just didn't compute in my head because I was like, how how can they have got these? Like, how can this be the numbers? And um, she, I obviously talked to her about it a little bit, but as you would do in any conversation, you then want to move on and talk about other things. But I couldn't, I just couldn't think of anything else. I couldn't 
and just from that moment my brain essentially broke I would say okay. so um, I, I couldn't work I didn't go back to work um, I was very 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 anxious I started having lots and lots of panic attacks um, I could was very like agoraphobic I would say I just wouldn't really want to leave the house I, I lived quite near to where my school was so I was really paranoid that if I did leave the house someone from my school would see me and obviously they shouldn't be able to see me because I'm off work and I shouldn't really be off work because in my head it was I'd done something really wrong and it was all I took total accountability for everything and you know my students might see me and then they would I don't know <laughs> see me as a failure or I, I don't really know um but yeah it was a really really awful place and so just just, really just for a bit of just for a bit of background context. So you went into that school. Like, how long after uh, had you worked in other schools before this? Like, I guess special. I don't know. What did you call it? The special measures. Special measures. <laughs> it sounds fancy, doesn't it? It does. It just does means failing. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So I I was a teacher. I'd been teaching for about five years, um, and I'd worked at this current school for about. I'd moved within the same like brand of schools you might call it so it was like an academy chain and so I'd moved to the school knowing that I was going to join this mission of making this school better um, and it did we we did really well in the Ofsted report um, but it kind of felt like anything that was positive that I had contributed to was just a coincidence or was just something that happened and it really didn't have anything to do with me and I would never take any accountability or credit for the positive things that happened equally within the results that I got I got students who got you know the top top marks but that was just a fluke or their performance it wasn't me I took full responsibility of anything negative um so was was that the reason that you went to that school was for that challenge um even in in part (laughs) I think essentially I just really really wanted to I felt like I had something to prove I'm one of five kids and out of my siblings they're all massive overachievers like my brother's a director of a company my sister's like a hospital director of pediatrics or something my other sister went to Cambridge my other brother is works for an embassy like they're all really high achievers and so I I suppose I felt I had something to prove and yeah I thought you know I'm a teacher in a way is that good and I always felt like I wasn't really good enough and I wasn't doing well enough. And so if I was going to be a teacher, then I would have to justify being a teacher by progressing as far as I could in my career yep. as quickly as I could. And so I saw this as an opportunity to to do that, I suppose, um, okay. which was, I guess, my motivation. No, no, that makes, makes perfect sense. So you sort of, at that stage, you're like sort of five to seven years out of uni. You've been working for a bit. You feel like you've got your head around the profession. You've gone into this school with the, uh, the the motivation to, uh, well, as you put it, like I guess prove a point, um, mm-hmm. to I guess sort of make your name as a teacher, um, yeah. and the was that the first lot of results that you got sent after going to that school, or was it just this one was particularly different to what you were uh, expecting? Yeah, so it was the first set of results because I I joined the previous year, but because there had been because lots of students left the school because it was so bad. They didn't really have many students in the, the year that were taking the exams. So I think they only had one class. And because I just joined, I wasn't teaching in that class. So this was my my moment, I suppose. Yep. Um, and yeah, I just couldn't cope with the, with the numbers because in my head as well, numbers were things that you couldn't argue with. They were, they were objective. And so if the numbers proved that I wasn't good at my job, then... And then they proved that I wasn't good at my job, and that was that. And there was, there was nothing I could do to change that. 
Um, and so, yeah, I became very convicted in this view that I, that I, I wasn't a teacher. I couldn't be a teacher because I wasn't good enough to be a teacher. So what, what was my point? What was my purpose? I, um, and I just didn't, couldn't figure it out. One, one last, just because I'm super curious, one last like yeah. throwback question. Why <laughs> did you want to be a teacher in the first place? That is a good question. <laughs> my mom's a teacher and throughout my whole childhood and stuff, I was like, I would never be a teacher. <laughs> like I would never want to go to school all day and then qualify and then just be a teacher and then go back to school. Like why would anyone want to do that? Um, but I love English, which is the subject that I, that I teach now uh, and, and taught then. Um, and I don't know, I just had this moment. What, basically I was approaching the end of my degree and one of my friends had signed up to be a teacher and do this intensive course with, within teaching. And she was like explaining to me how passionate she was about teaching, about children. And I think I'd always rejected it just because, you know, that's what my mum did. I'm not doing that. And um, and as she was talking and I was like, oh, my goodness, I, I think I would love teaching. I think this would be uh, like amazing. I can see myself spending my time helping other people to learn. Like, I, I do believe that like teaching someone something is like, I don't know, it just, it's like a magical, profound gift that you can share with somebody else, like the passing of knowledge. Mm. Um, and I am, I'm really, really passionate about teaching as it turns out. Um, so yeah. And I guess, yeah, going even, I think that's why it was so profound for me because I couldn't, I'd lost something which I really genuinely cared about and it, it felt like I'd like someone had died. Um, yeah. I think that's why it hit me so hard. So you got the results, you, in your words, your, your brain broke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was, uh, what happened after that? Um, so the next day I was supposed to be delivering, uh, we call it inset, which is like teacher training. Cause, um, uh, like an in-service kind of thing, like teach yeah, training so to the other teachers. Training to the other teachers, yep. yeah. So I was supposed to be delivering this training and they booked out the whole morning for me to do this training. And obviously I was, I hadn't slept, like I couldn't eat, I couldn't, just couldn't function. I could barely get dressed. I was just constantly crying. My husband was like, oh my goodness. And um, I, he was like, there's no way you can go in. And I was like, no, I'm going to go in. I need, I need to, like there are people counting on me. Mm. And he was just like, Ellie, if you go in you're like, and people see you in this state, you know, that won't be good. Like that won't help you to feel better. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, and I was determined I was going to go in and it got to the, the point where I got dressed for work and then I just couldn't, I just couldn't. I, it's, this is the other thing I know from when people have explained to me before, or I've heard about people having breakdowns or whatever you want to call it. And them saying like, Oh, I just couldn't, I just couldn't do like that very normal thing, like get dressed or put my shoes on or go out the door mm -hmm. or wash my hair. And you think, of course you can like yeah just, you know how to wash it. your hair yeah <laughs> yeah get up what are you doing but actually when you're in that frame of mind it, and i guess unless you've been in that frame of mind you won't really understand it i don't think but you you just can't you just can't do those things um yeah my experience with that and tell me if it's similar to yours is uh similar to what you were just saying in that you just you just can't it's like it's not that for me anyway it's not that you know, you, you're thinking it and, you know, you just can't make the decision. For me, it's like you literally just go, like there's a wall, like you just go blank and it's like I can't actually move any further. Is, yeah, it, is that similar? 
Yeah, I feel like my body just took over my mind. Yeah. <laughs> and it just, it, it was completely in control. And, I, you know, I was having panic. <laughs> it's just hilarious, though, because me being me and wanting to be this productive, ambitious person, I was just trying to, like, continue to do things. Mm. So I could remember I was unloading washing out of the machine. <laughs> and I just had this panic attack. And my head was <laughs> in the washing machine because I was halfway through doing this job. And I was just, uh, like... My husband's like Ellie just you this is the time when you need to just look after you and just but I hadn't I just didn't know how to do that because I hadn't done that for years so the idea of now all of a sudden just knowing how to do something which you've never done before and not seeing your body as basically the tool and the vehicle with which you carry out your your plans and push yourself to your limits um you know it, it's very difficult to change that perspective um so yeah, my body would literally have these moments where it'd just be like, no, you're not, you're not moving. You're gonna sit with your head in the washing machine for the next half an hour crying. Like, <laughs> this is how it is now. And that was terrifying because I was so used to being in control and I, I wasn't even in control of my own faculties, which was, yeah, very, very frustrating. So how long did this go on for? Like how long, how long were you at home having these panic attacks not feeling like you could go out not feeling like you could do anything um i was at home from august until i went into hospital so i was at home for probably about six weeks maybe maybe about two months um and i just progressively got worse and worse and worse and what happened is after a while my anxiety got kind of overtaken by it was still a form of anxiety but it was basically like this isn't changing. My body isn't stopping this happening anymore. Like I, fair enough, everyone has maybe a day where they just feel like they are overwhelmed, but this is, seems to be my, my new perpetual state of being. And I don't want to live like this. And it's not fair on my family for me to live like this. I'm no longer, I basically saw, like I used to say this in hospital a lot. I used to say, if I was a machine and the machine broke, you would get rid of the machine and you would replace it with a, with a new machine. And that's how I saw myself. And I was like, I'm a machine, I've broken, and now I need to die because there's no there's no point in me being alive. That I'm not causing anything positive to happen. Um, and I'd say that that kind of grew and grew and grew and grew. And then I tried to kill myself and ended up in hospital. So where I continued to try to kill myself very unsuccessfully. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting, something you just touched on then is something that I, I don't think many people... Um, think about when they're looking at sort of depression or suicidality is that you said that you weren't doing any or you weren't bringing anything positive to anyone else and I think quite often that's where the thought of that individual is is lying when it's in those situations it's you know I'm a bird and I'm not doing anything positive for other people. It's not necessarily, I think a lot of people have that perspective of that person sitting there going, woe is me, everything's bad, it's happening to me. Like it's it's not, often it's not so introspective. It's more um, the the impact that that person is having on the those around them is what they're actually, where their head's at in a lot of cases. Yeah. I think actually when you're in that place, your self-esteem and self-worth is so low that for you, for you the idea of, of being dead, that that wouldn't you, although people say like, because then I had the crisis care team who would come out to me a lot and see me and 
and they'd say like oh have you ever thought about the impact on your family have you thought about who would find you and I, to me like although I understood objectively like oh if my husband killed himself and I found him like that would ruin my life but because I just had such low self-worth and such low self-esteem I just assumed that he might be sad for a, a while like a short while but actually my worth is so kind of minuscule that mm. it wouldn't really impact him like I, I genuinely believed that I, I just thought I, I don't really matter so it's fine if I'm dead because you know I, I'm not why am I here there's no reason for me mm. to be here and and people often talk about the idea of it being like oh you're in so much pain and you just want the pain to end and it isn't that you want to be dead you just want the pain to end and I, I really disagree with that from my own experience because I didn't feel pain I just knew I had this like cold knowledge that I should be dead I just knew it um be like yeah and it's hard to constantly listen to people who say to you like no you, sh you you of course you're you're valid you're you're a wife you know you're a sister you're a you know daughter like you're mm. all and you're like no that I was those things but now I just I'm I'm not that person I'm I'm no one I don't really exist I'm just a physical being but I, I like my brain is there's nothing there's nothing I can give I can't fulfill these roles anymore there's no part of me that's able to do that so I should just be dead uh, and that's it's a, hard to argue with that <laughs> yeah I mean that's and that's a perfect example of something that I, I have taught therapists and students for ages with regards to having those conversations with people who are in that headspace is uh, there are certain things that you just don't do and unfortunately they go against your human nature and one of those things is trying to highlight all of the things that that person has to live for because yeah. in a lot of cases that's going to have the opposite impact to what you might normally assume that it would. Like you're not going to get a person that's going to go, oh, you know what, yeah, I'm really grateful for all of this stuff <laughs> you've just highlighted and it's like exactly what you just said is it's, it tends to be, well, they're not going to care or I'm not worth caring about or like it it, it gets turned uh, on its head to what the person is intending it to, um, which is one of the reasons why it's when having those conversations and something we try and get across to clinicians is it's about validating the individual as opposed to trying to fix it. And we spoke on, on your podcast earlier about don't try and fix it. Just listen. Like yeah. get to know the person, learn the person. You you don't have to fix things immediately. And yes, unfortunately, especially for new therapists, sometimes those conversations, they can seem really, uh, I guess, urgent. And in a lot of cases, they are urgent. But you need to make the space with that person, make the time. Uh, you yeah. might only be 30 seconds, but if you can make 30 seconds worth of time, do that because the sooner you rush in and try and fix things, the sooner you're going to fuck them up. So, yeah. I used to get all the time in hospital because obviously it was on my file like, oh, Ellie, you're a teacher, aren't you? They, like People would come up to me, like staff would come up to me and say that. And that used to just really, really just hurt <laughs> to hear that yeah. because – to me, I was not a teacher. I was a failure. Like I had no, like you're bringing up to me the biggest moment of failure in my life and being like, this is, this is what you do, isn't it? Are you going to go back into a school? Like, and I was like, I don't, it was just a complete like breakdown in communication because that, that was the worst thing that you could say to me because I wouldn't accept that I would ever teach again. So, so you, we'll get to that. I'm going to put a pin in that because it's something I want to ask you about that. <laughs> um, 
So when you went into hot, like, how did the going getting into hospital play out? Um. So. So you had a suicide I, attempt. Was that when you went into hospital after that? Yes. So yeah. I was taken in an ambulance, um, and. <laughs> I tried to kill myself and it was like in the evening and then basically trying to find a bed in a, in a mental health ward is very difficult. Um, I don't know if it is in Australia, but it definitely is in the UK. It can be at times. Yeah. Yeah. So we were waiting up all night trying to find, well, I mean, I wasn't trying to do anything. I was just, (laughs) just vacantly there. Um, But yeah. So by the time I actually was taken to this ward, it was five in the morning and Obviously, I didn't really understand what the hell was going on and how it like in my head, everyone was overreacting and this was ridiculous. And just let me get on with what I, what I need to do, you know. Um, and I can remember my mother-in-law like took me in um, and I was like, please don't leave me here. Like, you can't leave me here. What? what, what? Um, I don't have any clothes. I don't have anything with me. You know, like what? I don't want to be left in a locked ward. Like, And yeah. And then I was like right okay well can I have my medication then because obviously by this point I was on loads of (laughs) loads of different medication I had one which helped me sleep and the nurses were like no because it's five in the morning we don't give medication for for sleeping at this time so and I was like what (laughs) and so that was the first time I realized I was no longer in control of any decisions that kind of were about to happen to me and then I was shown to my cubicle in a dormitory and I can just remember being absolutely terrified and just lying on that bed and just being completely just, I didn't think that things could get worse because I, I and in a way, I don't know that, well, they definitely did get worse from then. But for me, that was, that was just a new low that I didn't think would ever happen. Um, and yeah, and then I, I just remember being really afraid, but then thinking, oh, it's okay, because maybe this is just for like a night or two nights or you know, and I suppose that's something we discussed on my podcast, isn't it? The idea that you have no idea how long mm. you're going to be in there for. And your so, family don't know. So they can't tell you any different. You said you're afraid. Do you remember what you were afraid of? Um, I was afraid of not being in control. I was afraid of the other patients. Okay. I was afraid of having to share a sleeping quarters with, with other patients. So the first ward I was on was mixed. Um, and... Although, obviously, of course, like in my day-to-day life, I'd met people who were suffering from eating disorders or people who were suffering from depression. I hadn't really met many people who were suffering from schizophrenia or um, bipolar disorder or personality disorders. You know, I, I hadn't really met many people like that. And now I was living with them. And not only was I living with them, I wasn't living with them as someone who was... I was on the same level as them, you know, people saw me, you know, as the same, it wasn't, oh, this is Ellie and she's the teacher and she's from this, it was, no, this is Ellie who is a patient who is suffering from whatever um, and this is Susan who's suffering from whatever this, like, we're the same now and I found that really hard to um, accept. From memory, when I listened to your, one of the episodes on your podcast, that ward had like multiple beds in a room, didn't it? Yeah, so I was, there were six beds in a dormitory and you had a curtain. Um, so it was kind of kind of similar to a, essentially like a normal like surgical hospital ward type thing. Yeah. So okay. it, the first hospital I was in, um, it wasn't purpose built for mental health. It was just a like a, a normal hospital. Like you could look out the window and watch A&E. It was always very, very busy on a Friday, I remember. Yeah. Um, 
and you know they basically turned this section of the hospital into a mental health ward okay um and so yeah it was just normal normal hospital beds and cell i that's i i've i've heard that there are some we don't have many that are set up like that in australia anymore um they're quite often either individual or twin chair type rooms um but i had heard i think it was on there's a, a uk podcast ot podcast called ot and chill um and i'd I'd heard i think on there um that there was some wards over in the uk that were essentially like dorm style rooms i'm like oh wow that's old school (laughs) yeah and then obviously you're sharing like the shower and the bath and the toilets as well um there was one woman who would just always i'm pretty sure she was doing it on purpose but she would always walk in on you when you're on the toilet and so you had no sense of privacy whatsoever or like nothing was your own. There was nowhere you could go to be There's no door or anything on alone. the toilet. There was a door, but they, um, because of people, including myself, would lock themselves in the toilet to try and kill themselves. Um, they, You could move the door so that it wouldn't actually latch. So there was like a little inch between the door and the lock. So you couldn't lock the door. So, uh, okay. yeah. so there literally is nowhere to hide. No, and then, um, yeah, the the more I tried to kill myself, the less privacy I, I had, um, yeah. fair enough. And so even when I was in the bath, <laughs> people would come in, I was in the bath, you know. Um, when you're asleep, you're not asleep for very long because I was on 10-minute observation. So every 10 minutes, someone's coming in and they need to see not just that you're not killing yourself, but they need to be able to see your neck and you're not allowed to sleep in certain positions as a result of that. And they would wake you up and be like, no, lie this way. And you'd be like, I'm asleep. I don't know what happens when I sleep. I don't control how I lie. So, yeah. That's, I've, that is new to me. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Wow. I I was very, very sleep deprived. So that didn't help. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've not, I mean, I've I've obviously heard of you know, people who are feeling suicidal being on closer obs, but I've never heard of them being not allowed to sleep in certain positions. If someone's that high uh, risk uh, here, generally they would just have a nurse with them. Yeah. Um, but they would be allowed to sleep because that's kind of important to someone's mental health is being able to sleep. <laughs> Yeah, I, I felt a lot um, on that ward. The culture was very much, um, if you made their lives difficult, I suppose, by trying to kill yourself or hiding things like bed sheets under your bed or whatever, so you could plan to kill yourself later that day, which for me, I found like such a nice thing to think, like it's okay because I'll be dead by the end of the day. So it's fine, like I'll get through today. Um, I don't know. I definitely didn't have a very positive relationship with staff on that ward, I would say, because I was really like dismissive of ev- like if they asked to take my blood pressure, which you have to do, I think once a week or whatever, I would just be like, no, I wouldn't. I was very non-cooperative. Um, and I imagine I was difficult. I, I was never rude or aggressive or anything, but I just wanted to be dead. I didn't feel that I was being heard. I didn't feel that the treatment was helping me. Um, I felt really, really help- helpless and powerless and out of control. And I took a lot of the anger out on myself, if not all of it. In fact, I did. I took it all out on myself because um, that was kind of the only thing I could do. Yeah. And then every time that I did something, there would be a response. And so in the end, I was sleeping like um, in the communal area under like bright lights um, without like a sheet, without like 
blanket like so that they could see me at all times um and again that just wasn't great <laughs> for our relationship but also for my mental health um and i just felt very dehumanized i didn't feel like a human i felt like a creature it sounds so. like a prisoner or a war camp yeah it wasn't great <laughs> wow okay yeah. uh this is going to sound like a ridiculous question now after that, but what is there anything that you think or what would be one thing you think in that situation that would have made the biggest difference to you from staff or? In that situation? Yeah. Um, there was one nurse on that ward who was amazing and who I don't think I would have, um, I don't think I would have moved and therefore I don't think that I would have, been discharged from hospital at all if I hadn't had her because she would take the time to sit and talk to me and ask me about what I was thinking and what I was feeling and I would be able to ask her questions and challenge her and I think as well again I don't know that this is the same on every ward but um, I don't know that they had many people who were from maybe my background I don't know like they obviously they had a huge different diverse range of people but they just found because I would ask them questions and challenge them like I, if I was in a ward around with a psychiatrist or something and they asked me a question that I knew wasn't going to be conducive to me getting out then I would just kind of be quite I suppose manipulative in how I responded to the question you know like um why have you got slice marks all over your neck oh I just scratched myself in my sleep because I'm not going to tell you that I was trying to cut my throat open you know because why would I tell you that you're not going to let me out you know and so it was almost like this horrible game that was being played maybe on both sides maybe I don't know I mean it wasn't a game it was you know my life but um and but with her it wasn't like that she was very much like okay so you're saying because I wouldn't accept that I had uh what they eventually called atypical depression because um I (laughs) was Because I suppose I wasn't typical. And I was like, if you're atypically depressed, then maybe you're just not depressed. And maybe it's just I legitimately have the right and have really understood my own unique situation and therefore determined I should be dead. And that is something that even your own professional team can't really argue with because I don't fit the bill of what a depressed person should be doing. Um, And so then she would be like, "Okay, fair enough. And then she would go away and she would bring in like the British medical definition book or whatever it's called and be like, look, here is atypical depression. Here's what it says. Like, what do you think of this? And so she wouldn't be like, no, this is how it is. And she would, she would kind of listen to me and then try and find things to to help and maybe potentially open my mind even a tiny bit. Um, so yeah, she was, she was great. How long were you on that? Because I know you, you transferred to another hospital at some point, but how long were you in the, the dorm style? Ward. I was in there for six weeks. And yeah. what changes, if any, do you feel like you made from a mental health point of view in that six weeks, in that ward? So the first time I tried to kill myself was uh, obviously what got me into hospital. Um, I'd never self-harmed. I'd never really tried to kill myself before the time <laughs> that got me into hospital. And throughout my stay in that hospital, I began self-harming like prolifically and became progressively more, I would say, unwell. Um, I was trying to kill myself numerous times a day um, towards the end, definitely. Uh, But also I was doing stuff like uh, people would come to visit me 
and I would refuse to see them because I just thought it would be easier for them if they didn't see me because then when I was dead they'd be used to not seeing me because they hadn't seen me for a while um, so I stopped speaking to everyone and like my my husband my parents like all my friends I would turn people away um, and when I first got in there obviously I would see people but then as I I would just say I really really declined um, from being in there yeah so yeah it sounds like you actually got worse being in that ward. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Again, I don't know that that's the fault of the hospital. And some of the things, one of the psychiatrists said, um, well, maybe you just hadn't reached like the peak of your illness yet. And maybe that's why. So I don't know. I, I mean, who knows? I don't know. But yeah. <laughs> I will hold my opinion for now. <laughs> um, yeah. You uh, just... Of interest as well, you were talking about how you're, you'd never self-harmed before, but you started self-harming quite a bit on that ward. Yeah. Um, the self-harm you were doing, by the sound of it, you talked about like scratches on your neck, I'm assuming it was without any kind of implement, it was you trying to dig into... No, so I, would, I used to go around the ward with this bag, which I, I used to do lots of colouring when I was in, which again was another thing. They were like, oh, well, this isn't a depressed person lies in bed. They just lie in bed. And there were certainly people who were very much like almost zombie-like. They would just be in this trance-like state and just lie in bed. They wouldn't wash, they wouldn't get up. Whereas I would get up, I would go to my meals, I would colour, I'd sit there and colour all day, just, which actually, if you knew me, you would know that that is not what I do like like I said I was a very ambitious like let's do 15 million things I would never just sit and color all day but I did um and yes yeah, so I used to go around with this bag which contained my coloring stuff because obviously because there was no real place for me to be where I could just have my own designated space I would constantly need to move around to find somewhere before someone turfed me out so they could have a meeting or whatever so I'd walk around the ward and I would find things I could use to self-harm so I'd use dvds and I would use um, like anything, um, cords from my jumper or hoodie. I'd use like, they had like a board games cupboard and some of the, the games were in like tin boxes. So I would obviously use those, break them up, you, just anything I could. I was like a magpie for <laughs> self-destruction. Um, and nobody, nobody made that connection. Like, oh, Ellie's walking around with a bag. What's in the bag? Like, no, one, no one cared. I wasn't allowed the sharpener though. I remember that. So, yeah, I've, yeah, I've heard that one. So your your self harm was it actually just self harm, or was it attempting to find a way to suicide? Uh, I would say when I was trying to slit my throat, I was trying to kill myself. When I was, um, I used to do uh, I've forgotten the word for it now. Ligation. I used to do lots of ligation, and that was to try and kill myself. Yeah. Um, try and hang myself. Um, but then, yeah, I'd, like cut my. Sometimes I was slitting my wrist to try and actually slit my wrists. But other times, I, I, as I say, like I had so much anger and frustration, and I blamed everyone else for the situation I was in. In that, I, I was like, I'm being put here. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be on Earth at all. And now you're putting me in a situation where I definitely don't want to be. And nobody is really helping me to get out of this situation. I can't see a way out. So I have to just hurt myself because I. Who else can I hurt? Like, what else can I do with this anger? Um, and then I remember one time um, one of the, the nurses came up to me and they were like, you do realise that if you continue to break up DVDs in this way, that we will charge you. And I was like, no, that's fine. Like, I don't plan on being here tomorrow, so you can charge me for breaking a DVD up. <laughs> yeah. That's unreal. Yeah. That, yeah. 
I think it, it, the reason I asked that is generally the, um, again, something we spoke about on your podcast is behaviors of language. Uh, and those, whenever I see someone who's self-harming, especially someone who hasn't done it before, um, it's a reaction, and I'm generalizing, it's generally a reaction to a situation they haven't experienced before. Uh, and by the sounds of it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, by the sounds of it, you have never been in a situation with so little control over your life, over what happens day to day, over yourself, over your situation, etc. cetera. Uh, and uh, we used to see this on, on wards, and it's usually all the like super gross stories that people hear about, people like smearing feces on the walls and stuff. It's generally because that is the absolute last thing they've actually got control over in their life. So they exercise control. Um, yeah. And this is something when I, when I talk to my students, I'm like, we see this with kids every day and we don't question it. Whereas we take things away from kids, they crack a tantrum. We see this sort of you know, what we would deem as misbehaving and it's generally because they've learnt or they know that that's the only thing that they've actually got control over and we that that we don't grow out of that i don't know where this this idea that humans grow out of that behavior is because if you uh anyone who's like read victor frankl's book uh literally is about finding meaning when most people would see there's nothing left uh, we exercise control over whatever it is we've got. If the only thing I've got control over is throwing rocks at this fence, that's probably what I'm going to do because it's literally the only thing I'm able to exercise control use my yeah. uh, within my locus of control in that situation. Uh, and that's one yeah. thing for healthcare providers to really note, especially OTs. Um, give that, giving that person control over something as much as you can, whether it's options, whether it's decisions, whether it's, you know, what do you want to have for breakfast? Anything. Like the more control you can give back to that person, the less you're going to see those behaviors that all you, you read about in, in chart notes and things. There's a reason for them. People aren't, you know, that I, I, presume you would agree but again correct me if i'm wrong that that kind of behavior isn't something that you would normally do no so no. and you know you saying that you're so right because like i i said anything i could control like people coming to see me well hmm. i could i could choose exactly. to not see those people um i could hurt myself physically uh, i also used to do stuff like ask to have my sleeping medication at i don't know seven thirty, eight o'clock so that i could just be asleep because i thought if I have to be here, then at least I can be unconscious. And then that's as close to being dead as I'm probably going to get. So I would just sleep from, you know, I'd sleep 13, 14, 15 hours. Um, just so I wasn't conscious and awake in that situation, yeah, which yeah. again was just about control. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If, you know, like, yeah. If you can control when you sleep, you're going to control it. And you, you, we, there's so many things that annoy me about <laughs> working in a hospital that uh, mainly sort of the way people are described and the, the behaviors that are like frowned upon, etc. that 
can be explained simply by it's the the system or the ward taking that person's control away. You see some people quite often, you'll see a lot of people that are described on wards as drug-seeking when literally the only thing they've got control over is the fact that the doctor has written PRN medication, which means that they can take it when they need it. If that's the only thing they've got control over, then anyone's going to excise that control over it. And then they're seen as, oh, they're a drug taking, they're a drug seeking. I'm like, yeah, because that's the only thing they've got the option to do. I didn't know that that was a thing. So I was always, I, because you were only allowed it every four hours or something, and I would just wait until my four hour slot and then I would be on, on that. So yeah, I suppose I was drug seeking then. Interesting. I never heard that before. But again, yeah. whether you needed it or not, if that was some limited little thing that you actually had control over, there's a good chance you were going to exercise that control. Yeah. Like, and I think it's just that shift from being seen as a human being with a life and you know an identity uh, to, to being a patient. Number. And I can yeah. remember there was one occasion very early on when um, this lady went off the ward. She like she went for with a visit to I don't know somewhere at the family room or something with her with her sister. And one of the nurses was like, oh, have you seen so-and-so, like this lady? I haven't seen her anywhere. And like all the healthcare assistants were like, oh, no, I haven't seen her. And I was standing there. So I said, oh, she's gone off the ward with her sister. And I can remember them all looking at me. And they gave me this look like, we can't trust anything you say. You're, you're, you're not one of us. You're one of them. And it was such like a moment in my head where I was like, I'm no longer a person. Like, my opinions don't matter. Like, what I have to say is not valid because I am no longer Ellie Frith. I am now a patient and that's that's my new identity and that was really that was something (laughs) this this particular ward very much sounds like you were admitted in the 1800s (laughs) i will we'll move on to your transfer to a new ward and i'm really hoping that it's a a slightly better situation than this one but before we do it was at this ward that you first had contact with ot wasn't it Yes, I did. Yeah. And so, would you mind um, giving your? Because I've I know I've heard your uh, your description of it, and I we've we've talked about it. But please don't sugarcoat it. What was your experience and thoughts around OT and what was offered to you, etc., on the ward? Yeah. So essentially, we they had no tea, and I met with her fairly early on, and she basically interviewed me and asked me what I wanted to she explained what an OT was and how they were trying to help me to to do what I wanted to do so I could you know develop myself or whatever or they help motivate people to do the things that they want to do or make them possible and I was like well I don't really want to do anything apart from die so I was very close towards her and she was very smiley and very enthusiastic but I think the, the longer the conversation went on the more she was like we're not going to get anywhere um, and, you know, fair enough. Um, so in terms of ward activities, the main thing that was offered to us was um, Christmas card making. So we were making Christmas cards in October um, and that was what was available to us, I think, three days a week. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I did participate a lot of the time. I have to say it was to do with the fact you were able to use scissors. And, I, and, you and um, I was like maybe I can have some scissors, but they were always very, um, yeah, I never got any scissors. So, but yeah. And then, so we were all aiming towards this um, Christmas fair that they were going to have, or they were going to sell the Christmas cards to make money. <laughs> and I was like, so I'm basically participating in a form of slave labor here. Um, so yeah, I made a lot of cards. Um, 
yeah that was basically what we had they had this man who would come in and um sing with a guitar um he did that like once every two weeks or something and that was pretty much it that's all we did that's all we had so you were that's the other thing in terms of control over what you did all day like what could you do there was nothing to do they, they were just interested in containing you and feeding and medicating you um which again just made you feel less human um because you just what what did you do <laughs> so was that the only i presume the christmas card thing was like in a group like it wasn't just one-on-one no you didn't do any we didn't have any one-on-one stuff so you actually didn't do any one-on-one stuff with you no they would come into our ward rounds but again that wasn't really one-on-one no so. interesting was there any other groups offered, even if you didn't participate in them, or was it just this Christmas card? No, there, there wasn't. There was no other groups. So fascinating. Okay. We, I think we did. Um, we made a display for the for the wall as well. What sort of display? Um, like I think we made like a Halloween display for the to put up on the board. Like you know, in primary school when you had like seasonal displays. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Halloween wasn't really a thing when I was in primary school in Australia, so <laughs> we didn't yeah. really do that. But I understand the the premise of it now. Yeah. yeah, that's 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 scary. That's worrying for me and for my profession. That is worrying <laughs> that that's the perspective. I am curious though. Now that we've spoken and like we we've, yeah. we've recorded uh, an episode for your podcast. Yeah. Do you? see any difference between not obviously i haven't worked with you or anything but any difference between what i have described doing and what was offered to you from occupational therapy yeah absolutely um oh good the idea of being to to be (laughs) i mean yeah it was it sounds like you do things quite differently but then again when i moved on to the second hospital they had a whole occupational therapy suite they had a therapeutic kitchen um there was a man he wasn't an occupational therapist but, and he I think a lot of the reason that I like was able to be discharged was was down to him um and his job was just to take people for coffee um so he would take you to somewhere else or it, if you were under section which I was um then you could go somewhere else in the hospital grounds with him and if you were um depending on your section so as I the longer I was there they gave me more freedom um, so I was able then to go into town with him and have coffee in town. And that was amazing because I felt like a human. It was great. Um, so we'll, we'll get to that. So you, we've mentioned a few times so far that you transferred to a different hospital. What was the, how come you transferred? What was the reason for that? Besides um, trying think, to get away from the horrible first hospital. Basically, I was sectioned. Um, so when I was first went in, normally people are sectioned when they go into a hospital. But I actually wasn't because... Um, my mother because my basically when I had a suicide attempt my husband was there and then he didn't know what to do so he rang his parents <laughs> you know what do you do so they were there at the hospital and they were like really like Ellie you must just you've got to cooperate it's the best thing to do if you don't cooperate then um they're going to section you and like it's really bad and and so I didn't really know much about sectioning but I was very much vacant I didn't really understand um you know what was happening to me at the time like I was basically brain dead at this point when this was happening. So I was just very much like, okay, yep, I'll go with you, whatever. Um, So I didn't go in on a section, but then pretty soon after I got there, they tried to section me a lot. Um, And then, so yeah, I was on a really strict section at this point. 
and I think one of the things that we when you are on a section you get an advocate so someone who's there and can help you to speak and um express what you want and I was saying like I don't feel like I'm making any progress at this hospital or whatever and it was only then when I when I mentioned this and because I had this advocate that they then realized that um in order to well I don't know like I don't know I don't know whether this is normal or not but they nobody had ever mentioned to me the possibility that I could actually move to a different hospital <laughs> like that was something that no one had suggested um and for a number of reasons it was beneficial for me to move um Number one, because this hospital clearly wasn't meeting my needs. Number two, because um, my husband, it was like ridiculous for him to get there and back. Just every like, time he wanted to visit me, it was a massive thing and he was working full time. Um, so then I was put on a waiting list and then eventually I was transferred. But then again, because I had such a negative relationship with the people at that hospital, I didn't really even believe them when they told me that I was on this list and that I was going to be moved to an, another hospital. So it was like two weeks where I was like, oh, you know, so I just kind of carried on as normal and things got worse and worse for me. Um, and so, yeah, so then when I eventually did move to the second hospital, um, that was a real turning point, I think, for me, because I had just thought this was a complete impossibility. And then when it actually happened, I was like, OK, maybe this maybe there is hope like maybe there is a tiny tiny bit of hope for me and maybe things could be better and when I got there just from the moment I got I mean when I first got there it was crazy because there was this very violent aggressive lady and I was taking her room and it was all very intense and emotionally charged but you could tell the atmosphere was really different um even just something as simple as they always had the radio on in the communal area so you were, you could listen to the music and hear the news and that was amazing because you just felt like you were in touch with the outside world um and so i think as a result of that um things very very gradually changed for me yeah so was the the second you see the first uh ward wasn't necessarily like purpose built for mental health was the second one like more designed for to be a mental health ward or was it also yes yeah, so it was no, it was a completely purpose-built mental health um, hospital. So they had two female wards. They had um, a male ward, an intensive male ward PQ unit. Um, they had a ward for uh, elderly patients as well. Um, and so the whole hospital was, was kind of built in a way that everyone could have their opportunity to use the occupational therapy suite or the they had it like a gym, you know? So I went to the gym with this man one-on-one, which was amazing because exercise for me even now is really, really important and helps with my mental health like massively. Um, yeah, they had a gym, they had a therapeutic kitchen, they had people like Ray who would take me out. Um, it was just a different world and like the opportunities that I had and the options that I had in the day, like there was a whole program of things that, that I could be involved with. Um, yeah, and I found it really hard at first. Like I still, you know, I was still really ill. It wasn't like I was like, brilliant, fill my timetable. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that wasn't it. But um, yeah, as I started, uh, you know, I I guess the, the difference was in me and that I was suddenly, because of the way that I, people responded to me, it wasn't immediately like, oh, what's she done now? Like, oh, what are we going to have to take away from her now? We're going to have to take all her clothes away. Are we going to have to do X, Y, and Z? Um, it was very much like, well, what can you do? Like, what, let's focus on, on what, on who you are and like how we can support you. And that was the, it was a completely different culture. And I think that made the biggest difference. And that gave me more of an open attitude towards accessing some of the services that were available. So you, you mentioned that this new hospital had like essentially a, a whole OT department kind of thing attached to it. 
So there was a, a sort of like a oh, what we would call maybe like a day program kind of thing yeah. set up. So you, it, none of that would I'm assuming here yeah, none of it was like mandatory and you could choose what you wanted to go to and what you wanted to attend. Is that right? You could choose, and when you were there, so I, I was on a, a completely female ward now. I had my own room. I had my own bathroom. That was amazing. That yeah. made the biggest difference to me. Like, it's incredible. Um, and you could you could choose, and they would, like, remind you beforehand. And then when you went, if you decided that you didn't feel, which happened to me quite a fair few times, I got there, and I was like, I just I can't do this today. I don't want to do this. Um, then they would be like, that's fine. You don't have to. You can go back, and they would take me back. Um, so again, you just felt like you, like you were saying, like you just felt like you had a bit more control over what happened to you in the day, um, and you had things to look forward to as well because it was like obviously there was only one. I don't know whether he was a personal trainer or whatever for the gym, and so it wasn't like you could just be like, oh, I'm going to go to the gym at four or whatever. But yeah, you could yeah. book in a session with him, and you could say, well, I know that on Thursday I'm going to go to the gym, um, and just little things like that helped to create a structure to your day. So, what? So what would what would your sort of typical day week look like now in this ward? Obviously, the old ward it was wandering around with a bag looking for things that you could <laughs> steal or cut yourself with. What well, what sort of things? Like obviously, you would do some of these. Was the gym the main thing activity wise that you were engaging in, or what else did you get up to that um, was different from the other ward? So I would, um, I suppose there would there would always be something on. It would always be different in the day, and it could just be something like a nature walk around the hospital grounds, um, which was lovely. Or anything which got you out of the actual ward was something I would sign up for. <laughs> um, we had someone yeah. who would come in and do Tai Chi with us, I think it was, okay. which I didn't really enjoy because of <laughs> the hygiene of some of the other patients. <laughs> it was very off-putting. Understandable, <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. Um, we did stuff like with food and stuff. Like, So we, I was there around kind of leading up to Christmas, so we made mince pies obviously we didn't we weren't involved in the oven or anything but you know just things like that and um, they also had a sensory room okay (laughs) that was it right yeah so whenever I was having like a real moment of just being really overwhelmed by life then I could go in the sensory room with someone and again we wouldn't necessarily have to talk but it was nice that there was someone there who who would just be willing to listen to you so just Um, just on the sensory room like was there initially someone who like showed you how it worked or showed you what to do or was it just like a a chill out room where you could go in and do your own thing it was i think i feel like it was more of a chill out space so they would turn all the lights off they had all different you know like fancy lights that would go on and there would be all different things for you to touch and you could just zone out um someone would always have to be with you which was fine but that was it was yeah it was just nice it was nice to have have a place that you could go to if you were feeling like that. And also it was a really good way because I was the type of person who I wouldn't want to, some people were quite like, oh, I'm feeling really depressed or I'm feeling like I'm going to kill myself. You know, you get very vocal patients, um, but I was never like that. And, but that was a way of me kind of communicating that I, was, that I wasn't feeling good that day or in that moment. Um, so it was like a non-verbal way to communicate, which was great. Yeah. Behavior, language. Behavior is language. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be the motto, I think. Yeah. So, when once you moved to this new hospital, obviously it was a very different environment. There were things that you were actually engaging in and doing. How? What impact did that have on the the suicide attempts or even the thoughts about suicide? Um. 
I I think early on in the second hospital, I think because it become almost like learned behaviour, it really had. Um, I was still making attempts, but not not as frequently. Um, and then I just the more I kind of opened myself up to the possibility of life and giving it a shot, the more I felt that I didn't need to do that, or I felt that there were more opportunities for me to do different things. So it wasn't a case of I've got nowhere to go. I feel like this. What am I going to do? I'm going to try and kill myself. It was. I, I feel really overwhelmed. I feel not good. What, where can I go? What can I do? I could go to the sensory room. I can be in my room on my own and just have my own space and just whatever. Um, and, and I think that just helped me, just little things like that. But I think also as well, I think you have to be, you have to reach a point where you realize that actually those things were great and they all helped me, but actually it was me who was the main driving force in my recovery. And I had to basically acknowledge that, look, they can prescribe you medication they can offer you this treatment. They can take you and help you make mince pies or whatever. But fundamentally you have to be the one who, who wants to give it a go, who wants to, to, to see the, the benefit of life. And, and like, you might not be able to work it out because I was constantly trying to work out and like an alternative way of how I could do life, even though I was now a failure and not a teacher anymore. And I just couldn't figure it out. And, and I just had to, be okay with not knowing how to figure it out um and they also had people who were lived experience mentors there so they were like you know um I, I had a personality disorder or I have a personality disorder or I had a breakdown and so you could talk to people who had been through not the same thing that you were going through but they they had their own experiences and here they were yeah um and that was really enlightening as well so we we have those in, well, I, don't, I can't speak for obviously all wards in Australia, but all the wards that I've ever worked on, we've we've had them um, often called like peer support workers and that kind of thing. And I, but I believe the model for that service came from the UK. So I think that's one thing that you guys were like leading. You're Yay. ahead of ahead of the curve. But um, yeah, again, that not necessarily like the same experience, but even the fact that. Like people that I have worked with that had contact with our peer support workers would often talk about how just the fact that they'd been through the system and come out the other side uh, and, you know, for the most part, uh, you know, they were well enough to be working with people that were currently in the system kind of thing. And I'm not saying that the those people like were cured and never had any issues ever again, but... Mm. They had learned ways to manage it. They had, you know, set up their life. They were doing what they wanted. Quite often the peer support stuff was like a part-time gig and they were working somewhere else as well. And they could, I think they offered, in a lot of cases, they offered hope to people that were in situations often where they didn't have any. Um, yeah. similar to what you were talking about before about how like you, you couldn't see part you weren't a teacher anymore you weren't going to get off this ward because you were just going to die there was essentially nothing past that sort of point um, the people that I've worked with in similar kinds of situations it's that's what the, the peer support workers have been really valuable for is showing them that there's hope and that you know things can change and they, they will change if they stick to it um, and even giving them sort of realistic timelines often, like, you know, oh, I've been on that medication. It takes, you know, so many weeks to kick in or whatever, or, you know, I went to that therapy or I went to that group or, you know, I have that diagnosis and I was on the ward and it took me however many weeks, like being able to 
like we talked about earlier again about how when you get on a ward there's really no end point so it's kind of hard to make plans i think the the peer support workers for a lot of people that i work with not necessarily gave them an end point but showed that somewhere in there there is one there is a discharge date there is a date where you can go back to work there is a date where you're not going to feel like you currently feel etc even if you don't know exactly when that date is it is there so that's a hundred percent i'm kind of stoked that you brought that up because that's something we haven't talked about much on this podcast yet but um yeah they're, they're a really really valuable resource uh for clinicians as well i used to we used to have a a, a few of them sit within the rehab team at the first inpatient unit that i worked at and i used to love yeah. me just talking to them about their experience and learning as a new grad that was like so valuable and i still keep yeah. in contact with a couple of them now and that was what, 12 years ago or something. Wow. Yeah, I, I like there, I remember there was one, because when I was like in, under my really strict section, I couldn't go outside. So I had about two weeks in the last place that I was in and the first two weeks in the, in the first, in the second place I was in where I hadn't been outside. So I, I didn't go outside for a month, um, which, you know, you think, oh, well, like is it, maybe it doesn't sound like that big a deal, but it really, really, really was to not go outside. And there was a woman who was a lived experience mentor and um, she was like, oh, I know how that feels because I, I didn't go outside for nine months. And you think, wow, if she could do wow. it for nine months, then, you know, which tells you, you know, how ill she must have been to, to be in that situation. Um, yeah. But I, I think for me as well, I started being able to break away in some 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 way in my mind and, and be able to realise like, Oh, okay, maybe this voice that is, you know, I'm not saying I heard voices or hear voices, but this thought pattern, this chain in my head that says, this is meaningless, this is pointless, you should be dead, whatever. I started being able to break away from that a bit and have like a removed perspective and think, this is how I'm feeling right now. And this is what I'm thinking right now. But this isn't necessarily like, I'm not my thoughts, I'm not my feelings. Like, this is just what I'm experiencing at the moment. And I can go in the sensory room, I can wait it out. And, um, that even helps me now (laughs) I still I still I think this is the other thing which um I suppose scares people when if I talk about the fact that like now I I like I have a lot of problems still lying in bed at night where I think I just want to be dead I don't want to live like I do and people think oh my goodness like that's awful like you should be in hospital or you should be you know having not but actually I'm okay with that because that's just that's like a facet of, of how I think like that's just that's how I am yeah. <laughs> you know that's yeah, yeah. it's not it's not who I am and it's not something that is out of my control it's it's just something that I experience and I just have to acknowledge it and just say yeah that's how you're feeling but you're just feeling like this right now and that's that's okay it's okay to be suicidal like it's okay I'm not saying you know it's a great place to be I'm not saying that it's something we should aspire to but I don't think it needs to be this thing where people you know kind of wrap you up in cotton wool and I'm really anxious and worried you know because that's only going to prevent people from really express, expressing how they feel and and what's going on with them actually if if you are able to say do you know what I just want to kill myself that's how I feel um then actually maybe maybe we we, we just need to give people the opportunity to do that a lot more I think because there are a lot of people <laughs> I'm definitely not the only one or I'm telling oh, myself I'm not the only definitely one definitely not but I mean so, and there's I got another catchphrase for you then these feelings aren't facts Ah, very good. <laughs> so, and that's something like a lot of the work that I 
do with or did with clients uh, was around exactly what you just described in, in externalizing the, for lack of a better term, the diagnosis, quote unquote, from themselves. It's not, which is interesting because I have talked to other people on this podcast about how, but they, they've sort of embraced their diagnosis as part of their identity. But for the most part, a lot of people do better once they're able to externalize it and not see that it's like concrete. It's not, this isn't you. This is just something that's happening to you. Uh, And once you sort of get to that point, you're able to do or put things in place that counter that if that's what you need to do. So, you know, if you, like for myself, I know if I'm feeling low, if I'm feeling depressed, I know that it's not, me it's like depression is is separate from me my identity what i see as myself but i also know because i know that and i know that i'm a separate entity to the depression i'm able to put things in place four times when i need it like i know like i've got five simple things that i usually jump back into if i feel like i'm slipping and one of them is go and sit outside for five minutes in the sun every day um, yeah. which is why that when you said that lady stayed inside for nine months, I was like, oh, God, I can't even imagine that. Yeah, um, and things like, for me anyway, it's like things like journal every day. I had to read 10 pages, drink two liters of water, and what was the other one? Like 10,000 steps. Like just go for a walk. Yeah. Actually, to start with, it's not 10,000. It's just go for a walk. Um, yeah. And then, oh, and meditate eventually. But, yeah, oh. once I could get my head into it. But, but yeah, but it's I just think tiny little things to start with. That I, it's, that it's about I can taking control. responsibility, isn't it, for your own for your own well being? I suppose, which to me was something I completely had to learn because I had not been doing that. And you know, like you would with a plant, a plant needs water, a plant needs light, a plant needs space to grow. And I have physical needs, I have like emotional and mental needs that needs to be addressed. And if I don't address those things, things will not go well. <laughs> like, I know they won't go well. Um, and I'm I'm okay with that, and and I'm okay with with the fact that, like, I suppose one of the things which, for me, is kind of like an ongoing thing is me because you kind of you make so much progress in your recovery or whatever you want to call it, and you kind of forget how bad things were, and then something happens or something and it triggers a memory or it makes you have that same physical response that you had back when you were having eight panic attacks a day or whatever, um, and you think, oh my goodness. Like you, you're only as well today as, as you are because of the things that you're doing on a daily basis, the practices that you're having, and that you're not above or better than the, the person who was experiencing what you experienced when you were entered hospital. You're still that person, that version of you is still there somewhere. And that person could resurface if, um, if you don't take these, these steps to ensure your own well-being. Um, and I suppose it's it's about <laughs> not getting too complacent and not being arrogant enough to think like, oh, I don't need, I don't need to go for a run today. Like, I don't, I don't need to talk about my feelings when I'm feeling really overwhelmed. Like, I don't need to do these things, um, which actually they they really really matter. Well, I think that's something that as a society, I don't think that looking after our mental health has been until probably this year has been even remotely as highly prioritized as looking after, say, physical health. Yeah. 
Um, we don't value it. We we never have. We've got a, a culture where, um, and I'm generalizing as to like Western culture, where you work yourself to the bone to earn and enough a pride money. In doing that. Yeah, to earn enough money to go up the ladder to yeah to earn enough money so that you can retire at 65 and not have to work. Like that's yeah. literally the the life plan that's laid out for most you know western cultured people that's what we do and there's like you said there's there's pride in you know getting that promotion in getting more money not eating in, lunch that day because you were too busy yeah or, I, was, I was too uh, busy or i got to do overtime pulling an all-nighter or, yeah pulling or, an all-nighter or i say that now it's like 10 o'clock at night now what that's different. Oh, gosh. That's different. It's fine. Um, but yeah, you're right. It, it's, you know, oh, I worked 70 hours this week. I'm like, that's not good. That's friggin' dumb. Like, why are you no, working I, that? But, but I, I was definitely part of that. You oh, know? yeah. I think and, we all have been at some point. Yeah. And I just feel like before, if someone was like, well, I worked 75 hours, I'd be like, oh, my God, I, I really need to get on it. I need to work out, you know. But now I just think I feel sorry for you because, you know, I just, even if you are able to sustain that throughout your whole life and retire at 65 and earn the millions that you have sought, are you, what state is your mental health going to be in? What state is your own ability to reflect on who you are as a person? Like, where's that going to be? Because um, like now, if, you, if you'd said to me at the time, like, oh, a breakdown is a great thing. I would have been like, are you joking? <laughs> it ruined my life. But actually, it gave me a life. It gave me a life that I, I suppose I'd never had before. So I, 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 I then had the, the freedom to say, okay, well, what do you actually want to do? What do you really care about? Who are you? What What are your interests? What are your hobbies? And, and I got that opportunity to get to know myself. It created um, was, space. Yeah. It created space for you to explore what's important to you, what you value, and what you want your life to look like. Yeah which some people never have. So lucky me. <laughs> well, that, and that's, 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 I, that's the unfortunate thing is that not necessarily that some people never have it, but some people don't even realize that it's a, that it's a possibility. Some people are so stuck in that sort of rat race model that the rest of the world has sort of decided this is what we need to do that they don't even realize that what they genuinely want is sort of being left behind because they're, yeah. you know, trying to get that promotion or trying to buy that other car or trying to buy that bigger house or whatever they're trying to do when it, it is often at a detriment to their own mental health. Even might be good for their social status, but what's that worth if you don't, if you're not happy? Yeah. Yeah, have you heard of? I think his name is Mo Gowder. Have you heard of him? Mm, he has. So. He he create. He wrote a book about the happiness algorithm, and he talks about how because he was like a multi-millionaire, and um, he was also cripplingly depressed, and um, he'd like buy a a new Ferrari or whatever, and it would give him happiness for like five minutes, and then he'd just be back to his state of depression, and um, and then his son died, passed away, and then as a result of that, he then went through a breakdown, whatever. And um, one of the things he said, which really stuck with me, was that, you know, we're, we're all very like forward thinking about, you know, getting to the next promotion or getting to the bigger house or, you know, and actually, when you think like that, you're basically pushing yourself towards your end goals. And actually, the ultimate end for all of us is death, isn't it? So you're, you're just living your life, like looking, you know, forward and forgetting to death. enjoy 
<laughs> yeah towards death you'll be dead <laughs> yeah you know yeah um, and that's i mean that's why uh, like, i mean i can't speak for other professions but mental health and ot in particular things like mindfulness and meditation are becoming a big thing um within the profession like and i i've done it with clients that i work with like introduce them to mindfulness and introduce them to meditation again to create space that they're able to think clearly make decisions especially when it came to times to make decisions do a meditation clear your head yeah five ten minutes what's it gonna matter did it take five or ten minutes you're gonna have space you're gonna be able to process things it also i found for myself and for other people allows them to in in times of say acute anxiety or acute stress allows them to be able to separate that from themselves a bit easier at those points in time. Um, and that's that's exactly it, like living in that moment and being able to put tools and routines in place that help support you to live in that moment, like you know, mindfulness or meditation practices, that kind of stuff, uh, are massive, are massive. And they're, they're so underrated and I think uh, got a bad rap for so long from Western medicine because it was like, oh, that's like something that monks do in the hills kind of thing. But I'm like the the value that it can have for everyday people. And it's it's not all like, you know, sitting there with your palms up going um with your legs crossed. Like it, mindfulness could be anything. Like it, it could be going for a walk and not thinking about what's going on. It could be just my mindfulness exercise that the bare minimum, the mindfulness exercise I do when I'm really not in a good way because I know that I can do it even in that state is I'll go and sit outside somewhere on a bench and I will literally just try and take in as much of the scene in front of me as I can. Literally, I just look around. I've Usually when I'm at work, I'll go and sit outside under a tree somewhere and, okay, I've walked past this place a thousand times. Let's see what I can find. Uh, that I haven't noticed before about this particular scene. And it might be, you know, oh, there's a branch that I haven't noticed or, you know, oh, there's a bird's nest over there or something like something tiny, but that's it for five minutes. And you're surprised how grounding just doing that is because it doesn't matter what's going on. If I'm focused on looking for something, it takes my mind off whatever's going on. I can't think and look at the same time. I'm not. I'm too basic for that. I, I'm not. I'm not skilled enough, which is a good thing for me. So it's like, for me, it's it's walking my dog. If I walk my dog. I'm focused on my dog. Yeah, that's a good place to be. Dogs know how to enjoy life. <laughs> yeah, do they ever? I think mine. Yeah. mine's asleep out there somewhere. But that's it. Like I think people have this misconception about mindfulness that it is like you know dressing up in a monk robe and sitting on a snowy mountain like with your eyes closed or something but it's it's not it's like daily activities you just need to find what is your mindfulness activity what is something that even at the most stressed most anxious most depressed most whatever what is the worst case scenario for you find something that you can still do like i could do a guided meditation on you know some app on my phone now but i know when I'm really low or when I'm really not in a good way, it won't do anything because I just won't take it in. I won't follow the instructions. I won't be able to focus on it. So you just need to find what it – start with that 
I think it's important that people put it together almost like a little toolkit of things that they can do at their worst. So that's why I've got those like five like tiny things. Like I can journal. And by journal, I mean like write like one sentence. I don't care. I can write a page or I can write three words. doesn't matter. I just have to put something on paper each day. Two liters of water. Probably do that anyway, but it's actually focusing on making sure that I do it. Um, yeah. You know, go for a walk. How hard is that? We walk anyway. Like depression's not going to stop me walking. Even if it's even if I can't leave the house, I can walk up and down the hallway. Like so, what? Doesn't yeah. matter as long as I'm doing it. Go and sit outside. I don't have to talk to people. I don't have to interact with people. I don't have to be anywhere near them. Just sitting outside, and while I'm doing that, I'm looking around, trying to take in things. These are really basic things that I can do at my very worst uh, that will over time, you know, give it a week or two, they have proven multiple times that they work for me. Uh, And I'm not saying that those are the same things that are going to work for everyone, but, yeah, you just need to find some of those things for yourself. Definitely. What was I going to say now? I've forgotten. This (laughs) This happens regularly. Um. Your did you have any one on one time? So I know you didn't have any one on one time with the OTs in the first hospital. Was there any in the second? Um, I think I had like a one on one with an OT, and then we discussed kind of what would be the best activities for me and like what I would enjoy doing and things like that. Um, and then I think I was booked to do the, the therapeutic kitchen, but that never happened for some reason. Uh, that would have been one-on-one, but I, don't, I didn't, it was more like small group sessions and stuff. And obviously I had one-on-ones with the PT and one-on-ones in the sensory room and one-on-ones when I went out. So I didn't have like an explicit one with the OT, but I was okay with that. <laughs> no, that's fair. You had like, the, yeah. at least you had some control. You had the, the, there seemed to be a lot more choices that you had. Uh, yeah a lot more things in your life that you could control at the second hospital compared to the first one. Yeah, definitely. How long were you at the second one before you were discharged? Six weeks. Okay. So you about half-half in the two hospitals. Yeah. <laughs> I literally was discharged. I went into hospital on the 6th of October and came out on the 6th of January, so it literally was six weeks dead for each. And how were you feeling on discharge i was very very anxious and scared and thought i just had no idea what was going to happen and now i was not in a like a safe environment in the same way that i'd been before and i felt a lot of pressure to have to um i don't know i I did not want to go back to hospital (laughs) so i felt pressure to make it work i suppose yep um and i did so that was good (laughs) um but yeah, it was terrifying. Terrifying. Were you feeling like uh, had the, I guess, the depression type symptoms eased by that stage, or like where was that? Say if, um, say if you were actually, and no, I was going to say, say if you were a ten when you're admitted, because but you said you got worse. If you were a ten when you got to that second hospital, whereabouts were you? Say like ten being the worst, zero being say amazing um, whereabouts were you do you reckon on discharge i think it it was uh it varied throughout the day i definitely had got to a place where i could identify my own thought patterns and behaviors and i and identify when things were about to go really not very very well for me um so there were several times where 
was nearing the end before I was discharged where I'd be out with my husband and then I'd be like you need to take me back because I'm not coping right now and um, so I got quite good at that and so I was really confident when I was discharged that I wasn't going to be in the same mind frame where I'd want to harm myself because I thought you know I'm gonna have to be you know my husband's at work I'm gonna be on my own <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna have to make that work um, and obviously I had family who would come and whatever but I didn't want it to be before I went in it was like I was round the clock babysat basically where someone had to be with me all the time for fear you know that something bad would happen yeah um, whereas with this, it was kind of, it was, it was a, it was a really nice period in my life where I was able to be like, okay, well, what shall I do with all this time? Like I have all this time, what shall I do with it? So I did stuff like, cause I knew you if I Christmas was just cards. in doing nothing, <laughs> yes, definitely yeah. not. I, I, I was done with that one. Um, but I was like, it's really important for me to have structure because well, if I have structure, I'll, I can make it through, even if there are things which aren't great. Um, and so and t- at times it really was forcing myself because there were times like I, I just would be like, I don't. So I volunteered at this mum and baby group. I went to a creative writing group. Um, I used to do different gym classes at the gym. Uh, I had therapy. Uh, and so I was able to fill my weeks with all these things. And even though sometimes I'd be like, I really don't want to go to volunteering today. Like, I don't want to do that. I really no part of me is interested in doing that. Or I really don't want to exercise today or whatever. I'd be like, okay, well, what's the, what's the opposite? Like, what's the, what's the alternative, alternative for you yeah. in your mind? Like, what are you going to do if you don't do that? Are you going to do something productive? Like, are you going to do something nurturing? Or are you just going to try and kill yourself? Because I had to be aware that essentially in my brain, there's a part of me that wants me to die. <laughs> and if I listen to that part of me, I will end up either in hospital or dead. And neither of those things are really what I want. Um, so I got quite good at being like, okay this part of you yes I've acknowledged what you think but we're we're going to go against that and see whether we can actually still have a good time or see whether we can we can do something even if it's not about me taking something from it positively maybe I can give something to someone else yep um and so yeah and that worked it worked really well so (laughs) yeah so you you mentioned like you were still seeing therapy I'm assuming that's a psychologist after I was seeing um psychiatrist yeah so no it wasn't a psychiatrist no so actually I got very little support when I left the hospital I was told I'd get um, a charge practice nurse or something community practice nurse assigned to me but that didn't happen because of the um the waiting list or something so I was back under the crisis care team but I wasn't really the right patient for them because it wasn't like I was you weren't in crisis no so I saw them for like two weeks and then I was just kind of on my own so I I privately saw a therapist once a week um saw him until i don't know i saw him for a while and then i think i stopped seeing him in like this october maybe october november that sort of time um i went back to work which was terrifying as well to the Um, to the same school oh no (laughs) no i knew that if look if i wanted to um be in a position where I could be well I needed yep. to do th- if I put myself back in the same environment then it's very unlikely that even even if right now I had really good intentions of keeping things you know nice and how I want them to be um you know you've got learned behavior and and those of references for how things work like so you could have been an OT in a previous life or something <laughs> you are speaking my language oh good um so yeah so no so I I thought it'd be a good opportunity for me to start um 
start again. So I, I'm, yeah, I, uh, yeah, went back to work and then so I was, did a lot of reading it, in that time as well. So you said it was like you're anxious about going back to work. Was the anxiety around that the same anxieties that you had before around getting the results or was it around something different? Was it around? I, I didn't know whether I could do it. I didn't know okay. if I was able to, to, to do teaching. I just didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> I just didn't know. Not like I knew that I could actually do it, but I didn't know whether my physical anxiety and I didn't know whether that would come back. So it was very much like, what am I capable of doing now? Like, what can I, what, what am I, you know? Um, so, yeah, but I, I, I just had to see what happened. I guess that's the thing. Before, I was very much driven by fear, like fear of not being good enough, fear of um, not having enough, I don't know, ambition or not, not just not being enough in basically every single way. Yeah. And this was now me being like, okay, what if you don't live in fear? What if you choose to acknowledge that you are afraid, but equally not let that be the driving force of your life and actually the driving force of your life be something similar to looking for ways of, of maintaining happiness and well-being and contentment um and so i think that's played like a, like my attitude to work is very different now completely different um because it has to be you know how's your how is your perspective around so you mentioned at the start like you had this uh like point to prove because the rest of your family you felt were like super high achievers how is your perspective around that has it has it changed yeah um it's hard as well because the thing is i don't want to be arrogant and assume that i know everything and i i have the true meaning of life now and they don't because you know who am i to say i don't know um but i think everything that you do has um you can't have i think life's all uh, to me being content and being happy and, and being in an environment which promotes my well-being is all about having a balanced life and so um yes in terms of their achievements i mean they are they they do amazing things and and thank god because somebody needs to do them you know um but for me would i be able to do those things and maintain balanced and my own personal well-being not necessarily um and so i don't know it's difficult because i don't want to pass judgment on them and say well they're living their lives wrong and they should have a breakdown <laughs> like no that's not what i'm saying but um you can say that that's fine <laughs> Well, no, because I I don't mean that, and, no, and no. like my way of doing things isn't necessarily right for anybody else. But for me, um, I would rather be happy, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's different. So, you, you like we said at the start, um, things like oh, actually, it might have been on your podcast that we said it. Uh, it uh, the the depression, a breakdown, uh, an admission, any of these kinds of events create space for a person where hopefully they're encouraged to or supported to kind of not reassess but just assess what's actually important and i think um that's something that too many people nowadays i mean you don't necessarily have to have a a breakdown or an admission to do that but i think (laughs) that too many people don't make the space make the time to to think about it and and actually sit down and go like you know what what do i actually value what is actually if i could only do you know a handful of things in my life what are the things that are genuinely important to me 
Um, yeah. And I think that's that's I feel like the where the the well the start of a lot of people's uh, issues with mental health is they they're living a life or trying to lead a life that is essentially against or in a, in opposition to either their values or what they really really care about yeah, yeah. or or they're just lost and they have no idea what those yeah. things are yeah 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 oh, exactly they, yeah they don't give themselves the freedom to go and find those things out yeah and um, again <laughs> yeah. it's one of those things that there's no definite like there's no this is how you do that either like there's some people that you know do the whole um what's that movie that eat pray love and just go wandering through the Europe, you know, trying to find themselves yeah. or there's people that, you know, end up in a hospital and it forces them to or there's people that are genuinely just like, okay, I'm going to, you know. Or some people just seem to time. have, like my husband's, he's great at just knowing, he just, he would, I like I, maybe it's upbringing as well, I think, because he just, he is very much aware of who he is and what he wants and what he doesn't want and um, he makes life work around that rather than, what I was doing, which is basically like, oh, you need my left arm? Have my left arm. Have my right one as well. Like, whatever you need, I will do for you. You know, it's about other what you need, not what I need. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, oh, I feel like you've taken us on a massive journey. How are things nowadays, though? How long has, actually, how long has it been since you, the discharge? Just for context. Uh, it, it was a year on January the 6th. So it's been... Okay. Just over a year. <laughs> what, 13 months. Okay, cool. Yeah. And things are progressing. I'm assuming, oh, I'm not going to say that like, they're continually getting better because I know that you know these types of things, it's not linear. It's, it's only life for like and, that, right? I know, right? How easy would life be? How boring would life be though if life was like that? Yeah. Like this is it, right? Um, I don't know. I know who I am more than I did and that's great, you know? So, um, do I still have things I need? I probably need to learn from life. Yeah, of course I do. Um, Don't we all? Do I definitely not want to go back into a mental health hospital? Definitely, I would not. Um, do I still experience suicide, suicidal thoughts? Yes, I do. Um, yeah, that's that's where I'm at. And I, I would hate for someone to be like, oh, you know, she went through this journey. Now she's enlightened. Now everything's changed. And no, there are still awful, awful days. There are, you know, there are still moments where I question whether this is the right thing for me. Like, that's being human, I think. That's the human condition. I think sometimes we have the tendency to look at other people and be like, oh, they've got it all so sorted. They figured it out. Um, even if they were like me, now they're better. And that's just not the case. Like, we're all on our individual journeys. We're all struggling. We're all uh, facing challenges. We're all having massive moments of achievement. Um, and that's just, that's the deal. That's being a human. <laughs> and I think, like, I I did one episode on sort of the stuff that I'd been through in the hope of sort of normalizing the conversation. You've started a whole podcast on yours. So where where did that idea come from? Because the podcast is awesome and I'm, oh. I'll, I'll link to anyone who wants to check it out. Um, but where did the idea to even do that came come from? I think it links back to control, you know. I think it was about me trying to take control and make sense for myself. 
the selfish reasons of what I'd been through and of the experiences that I'd had. And also because I recognised that it was really something that it was important that I didn't forget and that I didn't um, lose sight of, I suppose, as, you know, because there is there is a possibility that, you know, oh, I have a breakdown. Let's not talk about that anymore. Let's put that, you know, yeah. hush hush and we'll just move on with our life and pretend that never happened. And that's like a huge part of who I am now. And um, it's so important that we do hear these stories of these people because um, every episode I'd, I discussed a different person that I'd met and what I'd learned from them. Um, as well as sharing my own experiences um, and to me that was just it's just really important that w- these people's stories are heard because there is a lot of um, there's just so much that people don't know there's so many misconceptions about you know being on a psych ward and that must mean that you're like crazy and you're a psycho and you know you see like Halloween films of people being admitted onto psych- and they're all dangerous violent people who are going to attack you and that's just not true and actually these are these are human beings and lots of them have very turbulent lives and lots of them live very sadly on this revolving door cycle of coming in and out of hospital and are kind of trapped in the system somewhere and that sucks their life because basically when you have been in and out of hospital it's very difficult when you're out to then establish you know <laughs> anything like mm. anything else in your life like having a job or which is, i suppose is where where your role comes in but for me my podcast was just about making sense of the experience for myself thinking about what i'd learned from from it taking the positive from from what was you know at times very negative um and i guess again i'm not i don't want to come across as like really arrogant or like oh i've got this hero thing where i save people like save your complex yeah but but the the most rewarding thing um well on a personal rewarding note there was a piece in my local newspaper about me and my podcast and as a result of that all of the students who i taught and who had been in that results cohort had obviously found out and read this this newspaper article and i was inundated with all these messages from students being like you you taught me so much more than just English and you were you know just so many things which made me realize actually you don't know the impact that you have on other people all the time always especially as a teacher when you're one teacher with a class of 30 you don't know necessarily what kids hear and what they take away with them Mm. Uh, and that was like a really it was a lovely moment of closure and that came from from having a podcast um, and showing them and normalizing to them because you know for those children one day they had a teacher and then the next day or the next year, well, she was just she gone. Was gone. Who knows what happened to her? Yep. And actually, you know, teachers are people <laughs> and they go through real human events. And so for them to have an insight into what I went through and maybe what someone they know is going through or something that they might go through later, if there's more people who, who speak out about these things and say, actually, it doesn't mean that you're a psycho. It doesn't mean that your whole life, you know, that's your life sentence and you're done. Like you can carry on and live life. And we, we need to talk about these things because they're important. That's beautiful. I couldn't have couldn't have summarized that better myself. One last question, though, because I suspect this is an English thing, but I'd like you to explain it to me. Okay. What is a chewy head? <laughs> right. So, I used to have this student who um, we had a volatile relationship, shall we say, and she used to always say to me, like, "Oh, Miss, you're chewing my head, like." what you're saying is just chewing at my head. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? And she, what she meant was that what I was saying was really um, like getting at her, I suppose, or like draining her. Or, I don't know. <laughs> I was just telling her to do stuff like tuck her shirt in, but you know what children are like. But anyway, um, 
and that was kind of it, that it really stuck with me that turn of phrase and for me when you are living with a mental health disorder you have a chewy head like your head is being your brain is being chewed um <laughs> sometimes from the inside out um like but also society chews at your brain as well and that's kind of what creates this horrible mess inside your head and and that really reflected how i felt at the time so i thought i'll call my podcast that so, yeah because yeah, i saw the podcast <laughs> i'm like oh, i'm hoping she explains this in the episode because i don't know what it means but i like it <laughs> great so the chewy head mental health podcast that's the one and i'll uh throw links in the show notes thanks so much it, like i said i feel like we've just been on this massive journey along with you through your story and it's uh i've i've learned a heap uh especially around some of the conditions uh of the ward over there which is kind of worrying and it makes me a little <laughs> bit sad for the people that actually have to like utilize those services in a way but um yeah. and, and i i'm guaranteed that you know my listeners are going to take a heap out of this as well because um, yeah, your experience, your, your honesty with the experience and your willingness to to discuss it in an open and honest way uh, is so valuable. And um, yeah, yeah, keep it up. Thank you. It's awesome. Well, thank you for having me. It's been really good. Really enjoyed it. <laughs> if you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.